I invite you now to turn your Bible once again to 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we'll be looking at verses 3, 4, and 5 this evening. I'm going to read those three verses for us, but before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. So let us attend to it as such and receive it from him as such. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Beloved of God, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, so let's ask him now to use his word to cause us to love him and his commands and to walk with him in righteousness. Let's do that now. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. We ask this in the name of the one who is immortal, invisible, God only wise, the one who was and is and is to come, even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as we jump back into chapter 6, I don't want us to lose sight, as we can often do as we take our time working through a book, lose sight of why Paul wrote this little epistle to Timothy and to the Ephesian church. And we have that purpose statement, if you will, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul tells Timothy, I'm writing these things to you in case I can't come to you soon, so that you will know how one ought to behave themselves in the household of God. And so I hope that you have seen, as we're nearing the end of this epistle, how every single section does just that. Shows us, as the church, how we are to engage in the public worship of God and how the church ought to be organized and actually function. And here's the interesting thing. As we think about that overarching theme, one of the threads that then runs through the entire book that comes up again and again, now tonight for the third time, is this thread of Paul wanting to warn Timothy and warn the Ephesians, there are false teachers in the church. There are false teachers that want to take you captive with their lies. And so you need to be aware of that, church. You need to be aware of that, Timothy. And I mentioned that this is the third time. Let me briefly remind you of where else Paul has brought this up. He addressed false teachers first in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, where he tells Timothy to, to stop these false teachers 
from wildly speculating about things that they don't understand. And also to stop their monstrous abuse of the law. Do you remember that? And then secondly, he brings up the issue of false teachers again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And he tells Timothy that he can expect that through the lies of these false teachers, that some will go astray. Some will leave the church. Some will follow those false teachers in their lies that deny the goodness of God's creation. And now here for a third time in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Paul addresses false teachers yet again. And brothers and sisters, I think it's so important for us to not miss this. This has got to be significant in a small little letter that's only six chapters long that three times Paul brings this up. He wants us to be aware. He wants to raise the warning flag for the church. Why? What's his motive? It's because he loves Christ. It's because he loves the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because he loves his church. He loves Christ's church. And so he says, Timothy, I know you're of like mind. Church in Ephesus, you need to be aware. There are false teachers, and you need to turn them away. You need to not listen to them, but stop up your ears and not listen to them. And so what we see is Paul's concern that he articulates beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when he tells the Corinthians, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Because that's exactly what false teachers do. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. Because we love Christ. Because we love his gospel. Because we love his church. We have to take seriously that there are false teachers out there and we want to see Christ's sheep grow healthy and strong and the only way that that's going to happen is if they are faithfully fed Christ as it were as he is preached as he is administered in the sacraments and so there can't be any place for distractions and false doctrines that take away from Christ that obscure that gospel and so Paul says Timothy beware Church in Ephesus, be on guard. And brothers and sisters, we're going to hear that exact same warning this evening as the Spirit speaks it to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5. through 5. And as we look at this topic of false teachers, I want us to consider this under two headings. Two headings about the false teachers. First of all, we're going to look at what they do not teach in verse 3, what they do not teach in verse 3, and then secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we'll look at why they do not teach it. So we're going to look at, we're going to understand the enemy that we have out there, these false teachers, that they don't teach the gospel, and then Paul's going to tell us why it is that they don't teach the gospel. And as we do so, it's my prayer that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd who laid down his life for you and for me, as he warns us in his word of the dangers of false teachers. So let's look first then at what they do not teach in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine 
and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So what is it that these false teachers do not teach? They do not teach that which is in agreement with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a thoughtful person, and I assume every single one of you in here is a thoughtful person, you may be asking yourself, okay, so what are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? What is he talking about here? What is Paul talking about when he says the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? The reason I slow down to ask that question is my concern is that in our day and age of red-letter Bibles, and don't feel terrible if you have a red-letter Bible, I just caution you to not think that those red letters in your Bible are somehow more inspired, more the Word of God, than any other part of the Scriptures. That's my only concern about that. If you like having the words of Christ in red, then make the whole Bible red. No, I'm just kidding. But the point is, what is Paul talking about here when he says the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I love what Jeffrey Wilson, in his short little commentary on 1 Timothy, writes. He says the reference is not to the words spoken directly by the Lord, that is, by Christ in his earthly ministry, but the fact that the exalted Christ is both the ultimate source of the apostles' doctrine and the great subject of all of their teaching and preaching. Understood? So what's the focus of the apostles' doctrine? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the source of what they teach? It is the Lord Jesus Christ as he taught it to them while he was with them and then brought to their minds as he sends the Holy Spirit to do exactly that like he promised in the Gospel of John. And so that's what he's talking about when he says it's all that is about Jesus, this apostolic doctrine that has Jesus as the source and Jesus as the subject. And here's the sad reality, the false teachers are not teaching that. They're teaching something else. They're teaching a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words. I love that phrase, sound words there. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll see that there's a footnote that takes you down to the bottom and it literally says that that word sound there can be translated healthy. And I think I like that even better. Because what's the point here? They're not teaching what is in accord with what will benefit the church, what's healthy for the church, what the church ought to be fed. And what makes my mind go there is, you remember, in John's gospel, after Peter denies our Lord and Savior, three times he denies him. And you remember how overwhelmed with guilt Peter is. And then Jesus lovingly pursues him and reinstates him and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I do. And what does Jesus tell him? Tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed them, Peter. And what is he to feed them? He's not to feed them whatever junk he comes up with in his own mind through his own creativity, because that is not what will be healthy for them. He is to teach them what? what he has received from Christ that is about Christ. That is what the sheep need to be fed. And so Paul says that is not what these false teachers do. They're not good under shepherds 
who feed the sheep the green pastures of the word of God that their good shepherd has provided for them. Instead, what does he say? He says they're teaching a different doctrine. Literally, heterodox. Not that which is orthodox. Not that which they have received from Christ. Instead, they're teaching whatever they want. Whatever tickles their fancy. And almost always it comes down to one of two things, and it's usually both. Do you know what it comes down to? What they teach this different doctrine? It's usually about whatever you want to hear, whatever will tickle your ears, or it's all about them. And usually it's a combination of the two. Whatever tickles the ears of their audience and whatever causes their audience to be more and more enamored with them. And who is obscured in all of that? The Lord Jesus Christ. They make it all about themselves. And so church, Paul is warning Timothy. He's warning the Ephesians. And the Spirit is now warning us tonight through his word that we ought to be aware of this. We ought to be on guard. Always. We can't let our guard down for even a moment. Because who's attacking who? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who's attacking us? We're being attacked again and again by the enemies, these false teachers, by Satan and his henchmen. But they will not succeed. But that doesn't mean we get to sleep. Doesn't mean that we get to give up ground. And so we ought to be on guard. Now, that applies to two different groups of people here. First of all, it applies to gospel ministers, ministers of the word. It applies to elders and it applies to deacons. It applies to us as office holders of the church. We are called to stand guard, to teach the whole counsel of God, and then do what? Refute those who contradict. And so we have to be on guard. But that's not where it stops. Brothers and sisters, you have a responsibility as well to be on guard, to know your Bible, to know sound doctrine, to be discerning when you stumble upon something that maybe somebody else gives to you, or you're somewhere else and you're on vacation at a different church. You ought to think this through. Is this person teaching what is in accord with the apostolic teaching as they've received it from Christ, or is this something of their own devising? And so we must be on guard, brothers and sisters, because Satan is constantly on the attack. So now that we've seen what the false teachers do not teach, let's look secondly at why they do not teach it. Paul covers this in verses 4 and 5. And before I read that, I just want to let you know that I think that there are three things really that Paul highlights here, three reasons why they don't teach sound doctrine. And so we're going to look at each one of those. But before we get there, let me read verses 4 and 5 to you. He is puffed up, these false teachers, with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So what's the first of the three reasons that Paul gives us here? He's kind of giving us the inner psychology, the inner workings of the false teachers. First of all, he says that they don't teach sound doctrine because they're prideful. And they don't actually, in that pride, know anything. So the first reason is they're prideful. You can see it there in verse 4. They are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. Literally, they're swollen with pride. 
Now, if you know even the most basic realities of human physical health, you know that if there's swelling on your body, there's a problem, right? If your feet start to swell up all of a sudden and you're like, boy, these socks are a lot tighter than they were earlier in the day, get yourself to a doctor. You've got potentially a medical emergency on your hands. And what Paul is saying is it's no different spiritually speaking. They're swollen. This pride is unhealthy and it's dangerous. That's why John Trapp in his commentary on 1 Timothy, he says swelling is a dangerous symptom in the body, but much more in the soul. John Chrysostom long before him said the same thing. What inflammation is to the body, pride is to the soul. And Paul says these teachers are swollen with it filled with it and as a result of this pride Paul says they don't know anything <laughs> when you have this kind of pride you're not aware of it but you are constantly putting your ignorance on display everybody can see it but you refuse to and what's worse is that this kind of pride when you're swollen with it like this it further entrenches you in that because your ears are just stopped up. You're not willing to learn from anybody. No one has anything to teach you. Have you ever had a conversation with a person like this? There's not a back and forth. You're not learning from each other. It is a one-way street. And if you don't recognize that with this type of person, the conversation's going nowhere. Because <laughs> you have a lot to learn from them. But you have nothing to teach them. And Paul says this is how these false teachers are characterized. They're swollen with it. And so Paul says you've got to avoid them. You've got to stay away from them. We know that this is an issue in Ephesus because Paul's already brought this up back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Remember there he said certain persons by swerving from these, by swerving from sound doctrine, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so I love, as I was researching all of this, I heard many people say they are pompous ignoramuses. Isn't that fun to say? Pompous ignoramuses. And it describes them perfectly. They don't know what words are coming out of their mouth, they don't know what they're talking about, but by golly, are they confident in their arrogance and in their pride. And Paul says, there's not to be any of this in you, Timothy. There's not to be any of this in you, Ephesians. And when you see this, beware. Another historical example would be the fourth century heretic Nestorius. Now, whether or not Nestorius himself was a heretic or just his followers doesn't really matter to serve my point. The point is that he was so arrogant that if he himself wasn't a heretic, then he certainly set the stage for his followers. Because, I wasn't going to say this, but Nestorius is notorious, sounds like the beginning of a Christian rap song, for boasting that he alone understood the scriptures. He says, nobody else alive today understands the scriptures. I alone do. But then he went even a step further and said, and no one before me did either. And of course, we know what happened with him. He was labeled a blasphemer, a heretic, and his followers certainly were. They caused a ton of division in the church. And so Paul says, be aware. Because what does true wisdom look like? True wisdom does not look like these false teachers. True wisdom understands, as John Trapp once put it so beautifully, the greatest part of our knowledge is but the least part of our ignorance. 
That's what the wise person understands. Now, don't go so far as Socrates and say, I know a lot just because I know I don't know a lot. We can go a step further and say that we know things. But here's the thing. The greatest part of our knowledge is but the least of our ignorance. Just because you know a lot about one particular thing doesn't mean you know a lot about everything. You've got a whole lot to learn. And yet there's no sense of this kind of humility amongst the false teachers because they're not humble. There's no sense that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's the one that knows all things, not you. Fear him and teach what he has to teach you in creation and in the scriptures. We see these false teachers aren't actually wise. They may have an appearance of wisdom because of their confidence, because of the bold assertions that they make. But you see, James says that it's not wisdom from above. Remember that in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18? He says it's not wisdom from above. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic, and it brings about all sorts of disastrous results in the church. Because it is not what man was made for. This arrogant pride. And so I can't think of a better way to sum it up than the way that Paul sums it up in Romans 1.22. Speaking of fallen man, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And that is exactly what is true of these false teachers. And so the first reason then we see is that they don't teach sound doctrine because they are swollen with pride. The second reason they don't teach sound doctrine is because Paul says they are sick for controversy and quarrels. Look at verse 4 with me again. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Paul says this is unhealthy. All they want to do, all they want to do is sit all day long and discuss and argue and debate about everything. And Paul says, this is not something that you should look at and think is admirable and think is healthy. And wow, how smart these guys are. You're to look at that and say, this is a disease. <laughs> this is sickness. And that's why Paul, again and again throughout the pastoral epistles, at least once, in each one of them, warns Timothy and Titus, be aware of this. He says in 1 Timothy 1.4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. They devote themselves to these worthless things. Why? Because they're sick for controversy. And Paul says, don't give in to the temptation to join them. That is not healthiness, that is sickness. He says again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Paul says, avoid it, Timothy. Don't be like the false teachers who live for it. They feast on it. They lust after it. And then he tells Titus in Titus 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So Paul very clearly again and again warns both Timothy and Titus to avoid this perversion of loving to argue over nothing. Because that's what the false teachers do. 
rather than reveling in the clear, solid truths of the gospel. As revealed in God's word, what do they delight in instead? Hearing their own voices as they speculate about things that they don't even understand themselves. Now, let me clarify something. I am not saying that if we are faithful to Christ and to his word, that we're never going to be in controversy. (laughs) Because we will, brothers and sisters. It's a sure thing. If we stand for Christ, we stand for his gospel, we stand for his word, we're going to have to be engaged in controversy because we love him. Because we love his church. And we want to stand for him. And so we will be engaged in controversy. So the question is not whether or not we have to engage in debate and argumentation and defense of Christ and his gospel. The question is, do you live for that? Do you love it? Do you feast on it? Do you find enjoyment from it? And do you seek it out? If that's the case, there's a real problem. No doubt as we stand for the truth, controversy will find us. But these false teachers go out of their way to find it. Now, we can know in part that this is so unhealthy because of all of the symptoms that result from this sickness. You ever go onto WebMD or something, and what are the symptoms of this disease? Well, what are the symptoms of this disease of being sick for controversy? Paul lists it at the very end of verse 4 and into verse 5. And this is just a parade of the worst of mankind, of the ugliness that mars fallen man. So look there at verse 4 with me at the tail end. He says, This kind of love for controversy produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Ugh, makes me sick just to read it, but let's slow down and go through some of this. First of all, he says envy. Now, should this surprise you in the least? If these people are making, teaching all about them, and they're sick for controversy, they're swollen with pride, of course there's going to be envy. Because these conversations, these discussions, what do they become about? They're not about a pursuit of truth. They're about one-upmanship over my opponent. I want the spotlight, not him. I want to put my intellectual skills on display, not theirs. And so it's just this constant cycle of envy. Ugh. Then dissension. There's quarreling. There's strife. There's conflict. And the way that this almost always looks, by the way, is anytime you try to make, I know this as a pastor when I meet with people, you make a clear assertion from the scriptures, and they don't have a response. They just ask questions. They question your assertion to the nth degree. And so it just becomes this endless asking of questions. And so rather than acknowledging that they're wrong, they just come up with another question. And another question, and another question. And you know this, Sovereign Grace. We love it as your pastors when you come ask us questions. Because you want to know the truth. I am not saying it's wrong to ask questions. The problem is when you're just asking questions to show your intellectual prowess, not to actually get to what the truth is. You're just asking questions to ask questions. There's something really, really wrong with that. And these false teachers, they just want to hear themselves babble. And so they actually end up, as Paul already said, learning absolutely nothing. They're depraved in mind, and they're deprived of the truth. Next, Paul says that this kind of sickness for controversy produces slander. Well, of course it does. 
This is the oldest logical fallacy in the book, isn't it? It's recorded for us in scripture, by the way. Does Satan have a leg to stand on when he comes to Adam and Eve and says, you shouldn't trust God? No. So what does he do? He doesn't take truth and juxtapose it to what God is saying because he doesn't have any truth. So what does he do? He slanders God. He's withholding something good from you. God's not good. And sadly, Adam and Eve believe that lie, don't they? And see, this is exactly what false teachers do. They can't come after the truth. They have no truth. So what do they do? They lie about you. They lie about your character. They say that you said things you didn't say, that you did things that you didn't do. They're going to slander you. Why? So they can win the day. If they can discredit you so people don't believe you, then they can then take center stage. What comes next? Paul says this sickness also produces evil suspicions. And this makes absolute sense. Distrust. I mean, again, if these people are trying to slander you and get a leg up on you, then what are they assuming that you're going to do to them? That you're going to do the exact same thing. And so there's this distrust. I'm assuming the worst of everybody around me. Evil suspicions, assuming the absolute worst of everyone around you because you think they're just as messed up as you are. And then lastly, he says that what this sickness for controversy and quarrels produces is constant friction or contention, unending disputes that go on and on and on. And I got to tell you, as someone who's been involved in those with false teachers, they are exhausting. So these are horrific symptoms, are they not? And what's the cause of it all? Ultimately, what's even the cause of this sickness for controversy and quarrels? It all comes back to pride. These false teachers do not care about the truth or God or others. They are all about themselves. And we're going to see that very clearly in the third reason for why they don't teach sound doctrine. So we've looked at they don't teach sound doctrine because they're prideful and because they love to quarrel, and then thirdly, they don't teach what they ought to, sound doctrine, because they think godliness can provide for them. Look at the tail end there of verse 5 where Paul says, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In short, what Paul is saying of these false teachers is they see it as a paycheck. They see it as a career. I mean, I don't think it's incidental that when you look at most pastors' resumes, I hate to say this, but it's true, they don't stick around most churches very long. Why? It's a stepping stone to the next big thing. More money, more power, bigger church, more people, more influence. Looking for gain. And so Paul says that that's not what gospel ministry is about. It's not about what you can gain from it financially. It's not a paycheck. And so Paul rebukes them. For this, and this is a rebuke that comes up again and again throughout the New Testament. I could go to so many places, but just let me give you two examples. First of all, in Titus 1, verses 10 and 11, which hopefully someday we'll get there as we walk through the pastoral epistles, he tells Titus, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching. For shameful gain, that which ought not to be taught. Why are they doing this? For shameful gain. To promote themselves, to advance themselves 
financially so they can have more power. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now listen to this. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And Paul says, in no uncertain words, that is not how a true under-shepherd of Jesus thinks about ministry. He is not trying to increase the amount of his retirement account or his net worth. That's not why he's in ministry. Paul specifically says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We're not out to make a buck, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so by God's grace, Paul says, Timothy, follow my example. Preach Christ from love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But you see, that's the exact opposite of why these false teachers teach. They don't preach Christ in humility, but themselves in pride. They don't preach Christ with clarity, but obscure the truth with their own quarreling. And they don't preach Christ as they are compelled by love for him and his church, but because it puts money in their own pockets. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be aware of such men. Because the one who loves us, Jesus, our good shepherd, tells us that such false teachers are nothing more than hired hands. It's what he says in John 10. They don't care for us as Christ's flock, as the sheep of God's pasture. Instead, they see the church as the means to meet their own selfish ends. And so such men should not be listened to or followed in the church. Instead, they should be warned, and then if they don't listen, they should be run off. Because they're nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. So instead, instead, beloved, let us listen to Jesus, who is our good shepherd. Because in his love and care for us, what has he done? He's laid down his life for us. And he promises that he will keep us. And the way he keeps us, I hope you know this, is by feeding us with the word. Because as God's word is taught to us, we hear the voice of the one whom we know. And the one who knows us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then we follow him. And then let us thank Jesus for his provision of under-shepherds who faithfully feed the sheep. You understand it's Jesus who provides those for us. Those under-shepherds don't get to boast in themselves, otherwise they're going to get swollen up with pride and look out, here we go. No, they've been provided by Christ. And so when we see faithful ministers and elders teaching the word and administering the sacraments as Christ has commanded us to, we ought to see that through these men, Jesus is caring for his sheep, feeding us, tending to us, and loving us. In other words, through the means 
of the men that Christ appoints over his church, guess what? He tends to his flock. And we ought to have eyes to see that and thank him for loving us enough to provide them. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice that we have such a savior and such a good shepherd, knowing that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even as she is assaulted by false teachers. So may it be, Lord Jesus. Amen.